So how about this? Why don't we go ahead and open our Bibles to the book of Ezra, is where we're going to be picking up here. I'm going to pray, and uh, we're going to jump right in, but uh, real fast, if you're new here, what we've been doing on Sunday mornings is we've been going through the... Uh, the book of Ezra, we started this several weeks ago, it's kind of a little series that we've been looking at, and uh, we called it Building a Church for the City, and uh, the reason why we are calling it that is because really what's happening in the book of Ezra is this is a group of people that were taken off into exile, and then God's bringing them back into the city for the purpose of building the temple that had been destroyed by the Babylonians uh, 70 plus years prior to that. And so what's happening right now is we're trying to make some uh, correlation between what was taking place in Ezra's day, where the children of Israel were seeking to restore and rebuild the temple that was basically emblematic of the greatness of their God. And in some ways, we're looking at that and saying, for us as a church, we're building a church in the center of a city that's broken. Uh, God's definitely not number one in our city's life. And uh, people are hurting uh, there's a lot of uh, reality going on within the world we live in, within the city that we live in, that's just brokenness. That's the reality of the world we live in. It's broken. But we believe that the way that God wants to change that and transform that is by planting the church. And a strong, healthy church uh, that really exalts God, that really emphasizes the centrality of the cross, that emphasizes the uh, brokenness of man and the need for man's brokenness to turn to uh, great Redeemer, that things can be changed. I mean, we actually believe. That's why we're here. We're not in San Luis as a church, planning a church, doing the things that we're doing, because somehow we're convinced nothing will ever get better. In fact, quite the opposite. We believe in the power of God to change people's lives, and people's lives bring about change within family. Family brings about change within community, community within nation. This is how the thing works. We actually believe that God can do great things. That's why we're here, and that's what's happening in Ezra's day, is that we're going to rebuild the temple to bring about the centrality of the worship of the one true living, almighty, all-powerful creator, God. So that's what's happening here. So I'm going to pray, then we'll get to work. We've got a lot of stuff to cover this morning. It's all about spiritual adversity. Alright, so let's pray. We'll jump in. Father, we just thank you this morning that you are a, a truly a, just a good God. And God, we thank you for all the blessings we have. We thank you for your word that we have on our laps. We thank you for the rain that you've been blessing us with. We thank you, God, that we can meet here this morning. There's a heater that's actually functioning today. God, we just have so many things in our lives to be thankful for. And I pray, God, right now that you would help us to get a big picture of who you are in our lives. And so we just uh, welcome you into this place, into our hearts, into our lives, and we pray, God, that you would humble us, and you would open our eyes, and you would unplug our ears, and that you would quicken our feet so that we would be quick to move and obey and follow after and catch a glimpse of who you are and just be transformed by that. So we give you this morning, we ask all these things in Jesus' name we pray, amen. I want to start this morning by really just kind of asking a few questions. You know, have you ever in your life um, felt as if you're kind of bumping up against sort of a brick wall spiritually? Or maybe if you've been involved in ministry and maybe you're leading a Bible study as you're leading that Bible study or a little prayer group or whatever, it's just, you're just hitting rage, major roadblocks 
and things are coming against you, maybe in your heart you find yourself becoming tempted in ways that maybe you've never thought about being tempted before, or there's just sort of these roadblocks constantly just up against you. Ever felt like that? Right? Hello? We <clears throat> we awake? Um, all right, you guys felt like that? You know what I'm talking about? It, it just it feels as if there's some sort of oppression or adversity that stands against you. The, the sense of that is really real. There, are, there is the reality of spiritual type of warfare that happens. Uh, there is an adversity. The Bible talks about him. His name is Satan. Is really kind of the way the Bible describes him or his demonic forces. And what I want to try to do is we kind of move into this. I want to give a little bit of a background about this before we jump into the chapter. Because if we look at chapter 4, chapter 4, as I mentioned, is really about spiritual adversity. We'll get to that in just a second here. But I think it's important for us to understand this because the Bible does talk about spiritual adversity. It does talk about demonic activity. And one of the main purposes for this demonic activity is really always the same. Its, it's chief goal is to always bring about a cessation of God's work. Really, it's always the same case. I mean, Satan's goal, Satan's activity is to always bring about a ceasing of God's activity or God's work. You know, yeah, in some ways, he wants to bring about corruption of that and he can tweak it a little bit so it doesn't look as, you know, Christian as it should be. But again, even that is a cessation of God's work, right? Because if it's not completely mirroring God, then it's really not God at all. I mean, it might have elements of God, but it's not the genuine real thing in which God wants to bring forth. And so Satan is, is really at work trying to destroy, trying to corrupt, trying to cause a stopping of God's work. And that's what happens. He does this. So maybe for some of you, and you might look at your life and think, well, why is this happening in my life? It's very possible it could just be satanic, demonic activity. It's very possible. Uh, sometimes it could just simply be God saying, do something else. But there is the reality that that could be just simple demonic activity. All right, I want to try to give a little bit of a biblical background on this. The Bible does talk about a spiritual world that has fallen, all right? Uh, Revelation talks about this. It says, uh, and I saw Satan come down from heaven or fall down from heaven like a lightning bolt. In other words, uh, he was destroyed, cast out of heaven in a sense of being really a representative of God as an angel. It seems as if the Bible would talk about Satan was once in the presence of God as a very beautiful angel, one of God's created beings, and somehow, somewhere along the way, became corrupted uh, we're going to look at a scripture at some point where it talks about him uh, making decisions in his heart, saying, I'm going to become like God. And these are debated texts. Some people question whether or not these are actually you know, reference to Satan or some sort of other great king. But the same point, what happens is Satan is a created being by God and then ends up becoming evil and wicked and really is seeking to destroy all of God's good work. So that's what happens. Uh, sometimes, I think in Christian circles, there are tendencies to either overemphasize Satan or to underemphasize Satan. Don't think of Satan as an equal to God. He's not. Sometimes people are like, maybe Satan is like Jesus' match. He's not. He was created by Jesus. Jesus made Satan. 
Okay, I mean, if you want to try to make some sort of comparisons, maybe Satan is sort of relatively comparable to Michael the archangel. Maybe. All right, I have no idea. But it would seem biblically incorrect to assume that Jesus is like Satan's rival. He's not in any way. Okay, again, because what happens is when we begin to think in terms like that, then we make false assumptions, and I think it can lead to some people placing far too much of an emphasis upon Satan that's not simply biblical. All right, uh, C.S. Lewis once said this. Here's a quote that C.S. Lewis said. There are two equal and opposite errors into which our race can fall about the devil. This is in his book called The Screwtate Letters. He says, one is to disbelieve in their existence. The other is to believe and to feel an excessive and an unhealthy interest in them. They themselves are equally pleased by both errors and hail, uh, and hail a materialist or a magician with the same delight. So here's what C.S. Lewis is saying, and I think very correctly and very accurately. That what happens is most of the times people fall into one or two errors. Either they emphasize Satan too much. I mean, this is the person that sees demons everywhere. All right. A lot of times this can be in very ultra Pentecostal circles, ultra charismatic circles. There can be a tendency to very much so overemphasize Satan's existence and his power and his strength. And there's a tendency to always talk about Satan to dance on Satan and to attack Satan, and it seems as if there is an undue emphasis upon satanic activity. Now, the other of which is to sort of completely omit any possible reality of Satan at all. right? And, and again, there are churches uh, in existence today that tend to just sort of never want to talk about it, never want to think about it, never want to even give any type of recognition of the fact that there may be some sort of spiritual type of warfare or battle that's going on. And personally, and what C.S. Lewis is saying, which I agree with, is I think he's satisfied with both. Satan loves the fact that he's always being talked about in church. It's like, yes, that's what I want. right? And he's also equally satisfied that nobody talks about him in church. Yes, that's what I want. Nobody's talking about me. Or, yes, everybody's talking about me. Both are erroneous views of Satan. But the reality is, is that he is there, he does work, he is active. Here's what Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 2.11. It's kind of an interesting context. He's talking about a brother uh, in the church who sinned. Uh, there were some disciplinary actions that had gone on. And now the guy's really bummed. He's really depressed. And Paul basically writes and he says, Listen, you guys got to make sure that you reach out to this guy because he might feel really bad. You should love him. And then he moves on into this sort of spiritual sense where he says, listen, we don't want to be outwitted by Satan so that we would not be outwitted by Satan. For we are not ignorant of his designs. And some of your translations might have different words here. Uh, we're not, we don't want to be ignorant of his weapons. So basically what Paul is trying to say is that as Christians, if you're a Christian, if you're in the church, we want to be aware of the means, of the weapons that Satan uses and his demonic uh, entourage used to attack and distort and destroy and kind of remove people from doing what God wants God to do. Again, the chief goal of satanic or demonic activity is always the same. To bring about a ceasing of God's work. Does that make sense? 
I'll, I'll give you, I'm going to jump all the way to the end of Ezra chapter 4 just to prove this to you. Okay, Ezra chapter 4, look at the very last verse. Um, we'll get to this in, in, a, in a little bit here. It says, Then the work on the house of God that was in Jerusalem stopped, and it ceased until the second year of the reign of Darius, king of Persia. That's the sad reality of the last verse of chapter 4. That whatever happened leading up to this, it brought about a ceasing of God's work. So we want to be aware. We want to be um, aware of the devices, of the weapons of the enemy, not to overly emphasize them, nor to be ignorant of them. But we've got to be aware of these things, otherwise we will find ourselves trapped by them or ensnared by them, and ultimately we will find ourselves not doing what God wants us to do. The way this fits in the context for us as a church, guys, is let me just speak, speak it this way. I want to see God do great things in our church, all right? And I want to see God do great things through our church, all right? So you're like, who's he talking to? I'm talking to you, all right? I'm talking to you. I mean, we come from all sorts of different backgrounds. You, know, you might have been Christian for like three months, maybe for three years, 30 years. I believe God really wants to use you. God wants to use you for the building of His church. So the church would just shine forth God's goodness. I mean, all of you guys. But here's the simple reality. Some of you, some of you will never be effective. Here's why. Satan's already taken you down. You just have no idea of it yet. You're just not aware of it. I mean, some of you might look at your life and be like, Ah, I don't understand why somebody that I've known, maybe been a Christian for like three months, is already you know, leading Bible studies or God's already moving great things in their lives and through their lives, and here you've been a Christian for like eight years, right? You remember when you were baptized, you remember all these things, you're like, I just don't get it. It's possible, not always necessarily a guarantee, but it's possible. The reason why that's the case, maybe Satan, the enemy, some sort of demonic attack has renders you useless. You're just not even aware of it yet. We are ignorant of Satan's devices. All right, that being said, here's the next thing I want to just really kind of ask uh, as we look at this, because I think it's important for us to understand two different forms of satanic attack. I'm just going to try to uh, define it this way. There's sort of the common demonic, common demonic, meaning this is so off the radar screen of normal day-to-day living. We just don't even really think about these things as being demonic. And then there's uh, basically the blatant demonic, all right? This is uh, heads spinning on people, throwing up, uh, you know, green pea soup. I mean, this is, this is people levitating, all right? I mean, that's, this is like the blatant demonic, all right? This is Jesus crossing the sea and some guy coming out and he's cutting himself and he's bleeding all over and, he, and he's like speaking in like crazy voices. This is, this is a type where most people will be like, ah, demonic, all right? But the reality is, here's, okay, here's the question. If you were Satan and it was your goal to put a cessation or a stop to God's work, what would be the main way, your main devices that you would use to render God's people useless? Blatant? Head spinning, people levitating, some dude walking around with an axe, chopping heads off, 
whoever calls themselves a Christian, blatant or common. Where nobody would ever even suspect this is Satan. Common, right? Okay, here's, here's another thought. Do you want to know why we're still in, in the battle right now as a nation with terrorism? We have no idea who they are. Right? Do we know who the terrorists are? We have no clue. That's the problem. It's a whole new type of battle. A battle, a type of warfare that our nation's never even known before. I mean, in the past, like World War I, World War II, it was like we had a physical enemy. He was there. He lived on an island. Alright? If we drop a bomb on his major city, we win. Alright? That's blatant. Common is when the enemy lives next door to you and works at your same business and you have no idea because every single night, silently, He's shooting out texts, you know, emails to his little underground cell, and he's making bombs, and nobody ever even knows about it. Until all of a sudden, one day, in slips a terrorist, and bam, we're, we're, we're attacked, we're hit. Strikes where we're most weak. That's the type of most effective attack the enemy likes to use. This is why, why Paul says, don't be ignorant of Satan's devices. Be aware of his tactics. Okay, we're going to be taking a look at a lot of different tactics. We're going to basically launch out. So I wanted just for you to know where we're going to be going here this morning. We're going to basically read through all of chapter 4 as we have been doing. We've been just kind of reading through all of the book of Ezra verse by verse. But we're going to go through all of chapter 4. And as I look at this, the whole chapter is really filled with all sorts of very common and some blatant attacks of the enemy. So we're going to be sort of looking at a lot of the common forms in which the enemy attacked. And again, it all served as, a, as the purpose to bring about the very last verse of chapter 4. And the work stopped. Again, the goal of the enemy is to bring about a stopping of God's work in a general sense and even in a personal sense in your life. So if you're looking at your life and you're like, man, nothing's happening in my life spiritually. It's possible. Some sort of demonic attack came, renders you useless. Possible. All right, let's jump in. Chapter 4, verse 1. Here's the quick background story. Is there any... Are you guys hot? Is there any way we can turn that heater off? That would be absolutely a blessing. All right. Uh, otherwise, I'm just going to go Pentecost on you, and I need a hanky, handkerchief, all right? I'm starting to sweat up here. Um, okay. Here's what we're going to do. We're going to take a look at chapter 4, and we're going to take a look at several of the common things. But before we jump into that, I want to I emphasize sort of the background of this. So if you've heard the background over and over again, hopefully don't get frustrated with how oh, I've always heard the background. Just, just bear with it. I want you to learn it. Okay, here it is. I'm going to try to share it to you real quickly. First of all, um, Israel was invaded. They were destroyed by this huge world empire called the Babylonians, led by a guy by, uh, by the name of Nebuchadnezzar. Right? He destroys the Jewish uh, capital or nation, and he also destroys their temple, which is their civil center as well as the religious center. In other words, Israel was just completely destroyed. For 70 years, for 70 years, the people of Israel, the majority or several uh, thousand, hundred thousand, however, maybe a couple million of people were deported from the land of Canaan and taken into the land of Babylon. And here they were in the land of Babylon for 70 years. At the end of 70 years, God had actually prophesied prior to that. He says, listen, 
Um, this captivity is only going to last for 70 years. At the end of 70 years, you guys are going to be allowed to come back into the land. That's exactly what happens. At the end of 70 years, the children of Israel are able to come back into the land. Um, unfortunately, only 50,000 people actually return as refugees for the distinct purpose of not only rebuilding the temple, but eventually also getting to the city. So they come back into the city to basically rebuild the temple or to reinstitute the religious center of their life. So what happens is uh, by the time we get to Ezra chapter 3, we see that this large group of people of 50,000 end up building an altar, means to worship God, and they end up building the actual foundations of the temple. I mean, this is, was essentially the actual foundation stones were laid for the reconstruction of the temple. So at the end of chapter 3, you've got a bunch of people that are very excited because they're watching this thing happen and unfold right before their eyes. They're pumped. They're thinking, this is great. God's working. God's moving. I get a chance to be a part of this. And there's a large group of people as well uh, that has been around or were actually there in Jerusalem. So these are old people, maybe in their 70s and 80s, and they actually remember what Solomon's temple looked like, um, albeit they were young, and they start crying. They're really bummed. So what happens is by the time you get to chapter 4, word begins to spread, people begin to hear, rumors are going around, blogs are being written, the Jews are rebuilding their temple. All right, everybody knows about this. Word is spreading throughout the land. Everybody's aware of the fact that the temple is being reconstructed, being rebuilt. And what happens is all of the enemies sort of come out of the woodwork, right? Uh, the people that are opposed to the Jews start rising up, and they're basically like, we're going to take it down. We're not going to let this happen. We're going to attack. We're going to fight. We're going to withstand anything that you guys are doing. So here's what happens. Um, chapter 4, beginning at verse 1, the first type of uh, adversity or opposition I see that takes place uh, within them is really compromise. Take a look at verses 1 through 3. And now when the ad adversaries of Judah and Benjamin heard that the returned exiles were, were building the temple of the Lord, God of Israel, they approached Zerubbabel. Now Zerubbabel was the head, kind of the leader of this whole thing, uh, and the heads of the father's house. And he said to them, let us build for you and we will worship your God as you do. And we have been sacrificing to him ever since the days of Eshret Hadan, the king of Assyria, who brought us up here. But Zerubbabel, Joshua, and the rest of the heads of the father's house of Israel said to them, You have nothing to do with us in building a house for our God. But we alone will build to the Lord, the God of Israel, the king of Cyrus, the king of Persia, has commanded us. So here's what's happening. They come to the land, and there's this large group of people that essentially come to Zerubbabel, the leader. And these are people that were living, what we find out later, in an area called Samaria. And they make mention of a former king that had allowed them to come back in the land. And this is a reference to what was called the Assyrian captivity. Real brief history on this. There is the, the capital city of Samaria, which was called Israel, or of the actual nation of Israel. Remember, Israel was divided into two. You had Judah, and then you had Israel. Samaria was the capital of Israel. Uh, Jerusalem was the capital of Judah. So if you're having a hard time remembering that, like what's the capital of uh, Judah, just remember J's. Jerusalem, Judah. All right, rest all fall in place. Okay, that's what my brain thinks. Um, so what happens is uh, when the Assyrians came in, they basically intermarried with a lot of the, uh, the, the people from Israel. And it essentially formed kind of a, a, a mixed race of Jews. And as a result of that, the religion of Judaism was watered down or destroyed. This actually became what was known as the race of the Samaritans. So if you ever kind of wondered, like, where did the Samaritans come from? They came from here. 
So they were basically viewed as a pagan group of people that worshipped God in a very different way than the Jews of uh, Jerusalem did. Okay? So here's what's happening. These sort of semi-pagan, semi-Jewish uh, group of people called the Samaritans ended up coming to Zerubbabel saying, Hey, we worship the same God you do, right? Jehovah, right? you have Jehovah, we have Jehovah, right? Can we help you? And he's like, no, you guys don't worship the same God. We can't compromise with you. And so what happens is these guys end up basically becoming sort of a problem to them. And when you read the book of uh, Nehemiah, these guys come up a lot. It's interesting, and again, I don't have time to go into a lot of the history of it, but by the time you come to Jesus' day, several hundred years later after this event, um, in the minds of the scribes and Pharisees, and even of the disciples, what race of people are sort of viewed as pagan? It's the Samaritans, right? Samaritan woman, Jesus goes visit them, visit the lady, she's talk, he's talking with her. Everybody's shocked, like he's talking to a woman, and she's a Samaritan. Like, that's, that's bad, right? And Jesus tells the story of the good Samaritan. Who's he making the hero of the story? The pagan. Right? So again, you, you begin to see things from a very different light. Samaritans were viewed as the bad guys. And in Ezra's day, Zerubbabel says no. So the first issue that I'm going to take a look at in terms of spiritual attack is the really the temptation to compromise. There is a temptation for the church to compromise. Now, compromise can come about in so many different ways. I'll give me an example of a growing church. A growing church can compromise in that when, when you grow, there's a lot of needs that arise. There's people, there's like needs for children's ministry. There's needs for you know, people leading Bible studies. There's needs for junior high ministers and uh, high school helpers and so on and so forth. And there's a temptation, or even worship leaders, like you know, we need somebody desperately. So there's a temptation to say, we'll just take anybody. Like you play guitar, come on. All right, you know how to fog a mirror? Come on. All right, anybody. It doesn't matter who you are. And this is a temptation in terms of compromise. And sad to say, churches do this. They compromise. Rather than setting standards like what Paul does in 1 Timothy or in Titus, what happens is rather than looking for godly leadership to lead a church, just because we need somebody who has some sort of ability to exercise leadership role or leadership characteristics, a church can say, how about you help out? How about you lead a Bible study? I don't believe in Jesus. Well, that's okay. Keep that between you and anybody else, all right? Just we need somebody to lead a Bible study. All right? Can you lead our high school ministry? I'm always drunk on the weekends. Perfect. Just don't tell anybody. I'm not kidding. And this happens. There's compromise. There's compromise that ends up leading to distractions or, or destruction. God's work ends up becoming destroyed. Let me give you an example of the way this kind of plays out in the New Testament. You guys, why don't you turn in your Bibles real quick to 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 14. This concept of compromise, Paul picks up on. Right? Paul picks up on this 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 14. What I want you to see is compromise. It's not just simply making bad choices. It's rooted in demonic activity. Okay? You've got to get this. 
It's satanic to maybe use another term. Here's what Paul says. Don't be unequally yoked with non-believers. For what fellowship has righteousness with lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? What accord does Christ have with Belial? Or what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? What agreement has a temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. And God said, I will make you a dwelling. I will make my dwelling among them and I will walk among them and they will be, and I will be their God and they shall be my people. Therefore, go out from their midst and separate from them, says the Lord, and touch no unclean thing and I will welcome you and I will be a father to you and you shall be a sons and daughters to me, says the Lord God Almighty. So here's what he's saying. He says that we have to be careful to not connect ourselves. He uses the word yoke. A yoke was something they would put around the head of an oxen. You know, they would kind of yoke an oxen in here and yoke another oxen in here. He's saying, don't do that with unbelievers. The way this plays out, this is for an example, like a non-believer um, or, or a believer who loves Jesus, who claims to love Jesus, and they're like, listen, I only thing that's wrong in my life is I've got a non-Christian boyfriend. Not a big deal, right? Not a big deal, is it? According to Paul, it is a big deal. It's a very big deal. Because Paul would liken it to in the furtherance of the metaphor is what connection does Jesus have with Satan? That's basically where he's going. He says, what fellowship does light have with darkness? If you are light, meaning you're a believer, you're a Christian, there is a temptation to compromise. To be like, I really want to have a boyfriend or girlfriend or be married and, or even a business partner and so you compromise and you yoke yourself with somebody who is a non-believer. Paul would say, that is a satanic temptation. And it can destroy you. All right? That's where I think he's going with this. And I think we have to recognize that. Realize that's a huge temptation that we have to understand. Again, it is a satanic attack that comes from the devil. All right? This is one of those very common forms of satanic attack. It's so common that most people just don't even think anything of it. And that's exactly where the enemy wants us to be, is to where it totally flies under our radar, no big deal, we don't think about it, and before we know it, we're caught. Alright? But the same thing goes even for like business partnerships, you know, on down the line. That's the whole idea, is be careful, because compromise is a way in which the enemy attacks us. The second thing that I see is discouragement and fear. Ezra chapter 4 verse 4 says this, And the people of the land discouraged the people of Judah and it made them afraid. Okay, so these people that were of the Samaritans, or people of the land, they end up coming to them and they're like, listen, we're going to discourage you. They discouraged the people of Judah and they made them afraid. Man, this is so much one of the ways in which the enemy, honestly, my, my honest, attacks me. I can, I can find myself getting very discouraged very quickly. It's almost like there's this, this little like, door open in my heart periodically that the enemy just shoots an arrow and attacks me, takes me out. And I just get radically discouraged. Radically discouraged. All right, usually it might last for like a day, two days. I don't know if I would ever term it like actual clinical depression, but there are moments in my day, throughout my week, throughout my month, it almost happens almost... Every month, it seems like. All right? And there are these moments where I can radically be hit and struck by this, where I'm just, I'm down. I'm down. I feel so discouraged. 
I, my wife is praying over me. She's so good. She's just like, Ryan, you're, you're, you're going to get through this, right? And, and at the same time, it's just the way in which the enemy attacks. It's a sense of discouragement, overwhelming discouragement. I had a phone call from a friend of mine this past week. And uh, we shared over the summer, we talked about this, and he shared with me kind of the same things that he was going through. And he's like, I've never talked to anyone about this. I'm like, uh, meet your you know, counterpart, all right? We go through the same things, you know? And as we were chatting about this, and he's like, man, can I call you next time I go through this? I'm like, yeah, I'd love it. So he calls me this past week. He's like, listen, I'm just calling. I'm, I'm, I'm in that place. I am just, he goes, I literally feel like I want to walk away from the ministry today. I just want to, I just want to quit. I'm ready to find another job. I just, I prayed for him. I tried to encourage him in the word. And uh, he emailed me back later on that day. He's like, thank you so much. I feel so much better. It's like this cloud lifted. All right. But the way, the, another way in which the enemy works is to attack the mind through heavy discouragement. This sometimes comes through in the form of like, you know, if you hear, like if you're just sitting down and all of a sudden like something is spoken in your head like in the third person, go kill yourself. It's a pretty good chance that's not yourself talking, all right? Uh, it's probably not someone that loves you or is close to you. Pretty certain it's not Jesus. It's probably Satan, all right? Uh, end life. Just die. Go cut yourself. Pretty good chance it's the enemy, all right? God doesn't say that stuff. The enemy has an ability at speaking into our souls to bring about discouragement. And this is the way he does this. The things that oftentimes he says is to bring about the sense of, it's, it's overwhelming. I can't keep going on. I'd rather just quit. I'd rather die. I'd rather walk away from it. I'd rather just somehow live in pain and misery and discouragement. And it brings about fear that brings about a stopping of God's work. Okay, Paul the Apostle dealt with this. So turn your Bibles real quick. I'll show this to you in 2 Corinthians chapter 12. 2 Corinthians 12. 2 Corinthians 12 verse 7, he says this. He says, So to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelation. So Paul's talking about this. You know, God showed me a lot. There's been a lot of amazing things that God's done in my life. I think basically what Paul's saying, God's done a lot of amazing things in my life. But one of the ways in which God has kept me humble or tried to keep me humble is he says that a thorn was given to me in the flesh, a messenger of whom? Satan. Satan. There's an attack, a spiritual, demonic, perpetual attack that's upon Paul. And he says, to keep me from becoming conceited. He says, three times I pleaded with God. I begged the Lord to take this away from me. He says, but he said to me, my grace is sufficient. My power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast more gladly in my weakness so that the power of Christ might rest upon me for the sake of Christ. Then I am content with weakness, insults, hardship, persecutions, calamities. Because when I'm weak, I'm strong. Here's what Paul's saying. I get discouraged by this. And I beg God, God, please take it away. But he says, the Lord's come to me and says, hey, I'm going to be strong, strong on your behalf. Paul says, because I know that God's using this attack, this weakness in my life, rather than being discouraged, 
I'm encouraged. Honestly, for me personally, the thing that gets me out of these moments is just speaking to myself. I mean, that might sound kind of weird. The pastor talks to himself? Yeah, I do actually. Uh, and I don't think I've lost it completely yet. Um, I have to communicate to myself, God is your strength. God is your strength. My grace is sufficient for you. So Paul says, so even in the midst of spiritual, demonic attack, in the form of discouragement and fear, I just keep telling myself, God is with me. God is my strength. I will not be controlled by this. All right, next one is this. Verse 5. We see corruption. Uh, Verse 5 says this. It says, Then they bribed counselors against them to frustrate their purpose all the days of Cyrus, king of Persia, even until the reign of Darius, king of Persia. So here's what happens. Uh, We don't know the extent of how this happened and what what took place, but apparently there's a group of people that were bribed, you know, and I would imagine these are people that were working for the Jews, maybe part of the team, the construction team. So some of the enemies came to them and bribed them. So they say, listen, if you go and cause problems and try to thwart their plans, we'll give you X amount of money. So what happens is these guys end up going out and they start bringing about some sort of discouragement to the people. This is sort of corruption. Corruption has brought in or come into this movement that God's trying to bring about and has brought about destruction. Corruption is demonic. I'll give you an example of how this works. All right, turn your Bibles to Acts chapter 5. Acts chapter 5, background. Church started, it's growing, God's doing a lot of great things, and we've been trying to make some correlations between Ezra and the book of Acts, where God's moving, a lot of exciting things are happening, the church is growing, the Word of God is being preached, lives are being changed. Literally, the temple is being built. The temple of God through the lives of His new creations, the people of God, the church, is being built. People are being radically transformed. By the time you get to chapter 5, what happens is you see this community of people that are like, listen, we love each other, we love God, and if there's needs that you have, I'm going to help you out with those needs. I'll sell my goods to give them to the poor so that we can be a body that moves forward in the work of God and God's glorified and people's lives are changed. So that's kind of the excitement. That's the background of what's happening. By the time you come to chapter 5, you read this little story. It says this in verse 1. But a man named Ananias and his wife Sapphira, they sold a piece of property. And uh, And with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for herself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. Okay, so here's what's happening. This guy sells, you know, his, his whole piece of property, and he brings it to Peter, and he says, listen, we sold everything, and we're giving you everything. But what happened was he really wasn't given everything, given a portion of it. He's being corrupted, right? He's lying. He's being deceitful. It's corruption. Rather than just simply telling the truth, I mean... There was no written rule in the early church that said everybody has to give everything. That's called cult, all right? The early church wasn't a cult, all right? They're believers. They love Jesus, and they said, we'll do everything we can to help one another. But there was no, like, coercion going on. There was nobody saying, you know, I mean, Peter wasn't standing up saying everybody has to give everything. But for whatever reason, Ananias, probably because he was corrupted, he wanted to be viewed as more spiritual than other people. So he comes and he lies. Lays the money down at the feet of Peter and he says, here, I've sold it all and I'm giving it to you as all. So here's what Peter goes on to say. Verse 3 says, Then Peter said to him, Why has Satan 
filled your heart. Where this demonic attack, where does that come from? It came from Satan. This is demonic. This is demonic. Corruption is demonic. You ever think about that? A lot of times, again, this is one of those things that flies under the radar. We just think, ah, part of the human heart. Or, ah, it's a bad personality. Or, ah, it's just a little bit of a tweak in his personality. He's got some issues. I, mean, I think according to Paul, this is actually demonic. When people are willingly deceitful, when people are willingly going around trying to destroy God's work, it is not just simply counter-movement or, or a counter-church or a counter-work. It is demonic. It's corruption. Okay? It's corruption. Here's the fourth one. It's accusation. Beginning at verse 6, what happens is we see this letter that's written. I'm going to read it. Beginning at chapter, uh, verse 6, it says this. And in the reign of Ahasuerus, in the beginning of the reign, they wrote an accusation against the inhabitants of Judah and Jerusalem. So there's a group of people that's sort of leading this charge against the Jews, and they start writing this letter of accusation against them, and they send it to this guy, the, uh, the leader in uh, Persia. It says, In the days of Artaxerxes, uh, Bishlam, and Mithridath, and Tabel, and the rest of the associates, they wrote to Artaxerxes, king of Persia, and the letter was written in Aramaic and translated, uh, Rehum, the commander, and Shimshai, the scribe, wrote a letter against Jerusalem and Artaxerxes, the king, as follows. Rehum, the commander, Shimshai, the scribe, and the rest of their associates, the judges, the governors, the officials, the Persians, the men of Erech, and the Babylonians, the men of Susa, uh, that is, the Elamites, and the rest of the nations, whom the great noble uh, Asnapper reported, <laughs> crazy names, and settled in the cities of Samaria and the rest of the province beyond the river. It says, this is a copy of the letter that they sent to our Xerxes, the king. Your servants, the men of the province beyond the river, greet, uh, send greeting. And now be, it known to you that the, uh, now be it known to the king that the Jews who came up from us and have gone to Jerusalem, that they are rebuilding a rebellious and a wicked city. They are finishing the walls and they're repairing the foundations. And now be it known to the king that in this city, uh, in, that if this city is rebuilt, the walls finished, and they will not pay tribute or custom or toll, and the royal revenue will be impaired. Now, because we eat the salt of the palace of the king, in other words, you know, everything that we have is basically from the king, even down to our table salt, it says, it is not fitting for us to witness the king's dishonor. Therefore, we send and inform the king in order to search, in order, in order for a search to be made in the book of the records of your fathers, uh, you will find that the book of the records and learn that the city is rebellious. So the Jews, they're rebellious. They're hurtful to kings. Uh, or they bring about insurrection. Now the provinces and the sedition is stirred up in it from old. That is why to this day uh, it was laid waste. We make it known to the king that if the city is rebuilt and its walls are finished, then you will have uh, no possession in the province beyond the river. So they're basically saying... If they build their temple, if they're allowed to build their city, they'll bring about insurrection, they won't pay tribute, they'll bring about rebellion. Just read the history books, you'll find these guys are a bunch of lame, rebellious people. That's what you'll find. Read the books. So it's an accusation made against them. And what's happening now is, you know, all of this is sort of coming to a head, this sense of accusation. Now again, really this is true. The Jewish people were rebellious. 
But what, what I want you to check this out. So open to Zechariah. You have to kind of find this one. Uh, no judgment if you want to look in the table of contents. We love you. Um, find the book of Zechariah. The book of Zechariah. Chapter 3. And basically this takes place in the same time period. Zechariah was one of the prophets. Uh, during this period of time, he actually spoke during this period of time, and he writes about a circumstance. I think he actually writes about this particular event of accusation. So this is a really amazing passage. I, I read this this morning, and to be honest with you, it absolutely throttled me. All right, It just absolutely blew me away to realize, in the midst of accusation, the way that God speaks. But what I want you to see is that the Bible actually describes Satan as the accuser of the brethren. So where does accusation come from? Demonic activity. Okay? You have to understand that. You have to understand. Accusation, well, they're, they're an idiot. Alright? It might be true, but if you're talking about a believer, you've got to see it through God's eyes. Otherwise, what happens is unwittingly, unknowingly, we leave with Satan. We become his mouthpiece. So here's what happens in Zechariah chapter 3. It says, Then he showed me Joshua the high priest. Now this is the priest that you see uh, regularly spoken of with uh, Zerubbabel. So these guys are a tag team. Zerubbabel is kind of the leader of the civil order. Joshua is the leader of the religious order. So it says in Zechariah 3, verse 1, And then he showed me Joshua the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord, and Satan is standing at his right hand to accuse him. And the Lord then said to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, O Satan, and the Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is not this the brand plucked from the fire? Now Joshua was standing before the angel clothed with filthy garments, and the angel then said to those who were standing before him, Remove the filthy garments from him. In him he said, Behold, I have taken away your iniquity, away from you. I will clothe you in pure garments. And I said, Let them put a clean turban on his head. And they put a clean turban on his head and clothed him in garments. And the angel of the Lord was standing by. Here's the picture. God. And Satan's right next to God. And here's Joshua the high priest. Here's what Satan does. Joshua, he's talking to God. Joshua is filthy. Look at him. He's horrible. He has sinned against you, God. He has done horrible things against you. Here's what God says. Satan, yes, you're right. He was in the fire. But I plucked him like a brand out of that fire. I plucked him out of that fire. He belongs to me. Yes, his garments are dirty. Yes, they're soiled. Yes, they're filthy. But then God makes another command. He says, let another angel come and give him brand new clothing. Let him put a brand new turban on his head. So here's the issue. Accusation is demonic. It comes from the accuser of the brethren, who's Satan. But the beauty of it is, if you're in Christ, you got God standing there, right there, saying, they belong to me. They are plucked like a firebrand out of the fire. If you're standing around a cult, you know, like a fire at nighttime, you're watching like a piece of wood that's just kindling, it's burning, it's red hot. God takes that, pulls it out of the fire, says, this, this belongs to me. Yes, it was burning. Yes, it deserves to be destroyed. Yes, it deserves to be consumed. But I have chosen to redeem it. 
So accusing comes from Satan. Here's the final thing in the chapter. That's right. The final thing in the chapter is this physical force. Now this is sort of a blatant way in which the enemy attacks. 17 through 24 says this, And the king sent an answer to Rehum, the commander, Shimshai the scribe, and the rest of the associates who live in Samaria, and the rest of the province beyond the river, greeting, and now in the letter sent you has been plainly read before me. Verse 19, it says, And I will make a decree, and I will search what has been made, and it shall be found that this city from of old has risen against kings, and that rebellion and sedition have been made in it, and that mighty kings have been over Jerusalem and ruled over the whole province beyond the river, to whom tribute and custom were and toll were paid, and therefore make a decree that these men be made to cease, and that the city is not rebuilt until a decree is made by me. And take care not to be slack in this matter. Why should I why why should damage grow to the hurt of the king? And then the copy of the King Artaxerxes' letter was read before Rehum and Shimshai, the scribe and their associates. And they went in haste in the Jews at Jerusalem. And by force and power, they made them to cease. And then the work of the house of God that is in Jerusalem stopped. And it ceased until the second year of the reign of Darius, king of Persia. So what happens is uh, this letter is read by the king in Persia. He does research, discovers that the children of Israel have had this history of rebellion. And, uh, you know, they are prone to everything that was against them in terms of accusation. He says, listen, we've got to stop this then. We've got to stop this. So a letter now is sent back to the people there in Jerusalem. These people then receive the letter. Now with new fresh papers in their hand, they end up finding the Jewish leaders that are sort of moving forward in the reconstruction, the building of the temple, and they force them to stop. By force... They cause them to stop. So this is sort of like a, like an, like a straight up, um, blatant, in your face type of demonic attack to ultimately bring about a stopping of God's work. Okay, So this is what happens. I'm actually going to stop right here. I'm going to f- finish up the rest of this next week. There's a lot more that I have to say. And I just realized if I keep going, we'll be here for another hour. So I'm going to stop. Um, but what I want to finish up in terms of some wrapping up thoughts on is to consider how do we deal with this then? All right, What ought to be our response? Because the reality is we live in a world that despite what we typically think is really a battlefield. It is a battlefield. We live in a world that is really under the domain of the prince of the power of this age. Satan. All right? And his goal is to blind people's eyes, to keep them away from God, and to keep God's people sort of hindered in the work of God. So in other words, Satan kind of looks at it this way. If I can just sort of keep people from doing what God wants them to do, then God's work will stop. All right? Or at least it will be moving forward very slowly. And this is why I said as a church, guys, I want to be a church that is not sort of hindered by these types of attacks. Now, there are blatant attacks, and then there's sort of just common demonic attacks. But the reality is they exist. We need to be aware of them. Next week, we're going to be looking at some other ones that I think might actually shock you. Might actually shock you. All right? 
hopefully there'll be encouragement for us to kind of open our eyes to be aware of the reality of these things. But what I want to finish with right now is I want you guys to turn your Bibles real quickly to the book of uh, James, James chapter 4, James chapter 4, beginning about verse 4. This bigger question has to be asked, like, how do we deal with it then? How do we deal with these demonic attacks? Because if we know that they're coming, and if we know that they're there, and maybe you're kind of living in the middle of it right now, how do you deal with it? Here's what James, uh, Jesus' half-brother, says. He says, Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of this world makes himself an enemy of God. I think what he's saying is that, listen, you've got to have your eyes open. There are, there's basically a fence, all right? Some people are trying really hard to walk in that fence to be like, you know, I'm going to hang with the world and I'm going to try to have one foot in hanging with God. All right? Have you ever tried to straddle a fence? It's really not that comfortable. All right? And I don't think it's good for you either. But the bottom line I'm trying to say is that there are people that are trying to straddle this fence. It just doesn't work. That's what uh, James says. Friendship with the world makes you an enemy of God. And Satan will do everything he can to try to trap us up, to try to keep us in a place where we're caught in this snare, where we are sitting and cowering and falling under the accusations of the enemy, rather than looking to the cross. That liberates. Okay? Here's what he finishes up here. He says, God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Love this. Because his whole point is, listen, yes, there's a spiritual world. Yes, we are in the middle of crossfire. Yes, if you don't do anything, you'll be hit. Do you hear that? If you don't do anything, you'll be hit. That means that the Christian life is one of activity. You have to be moving. You have to be on guard. You have to be aware of the devices of the enemy. Like I said, next week we're going to look at several more of them. But what I want to finish with right now is knowing the ones that we have basically taken out of this chapter. What do we do about it? How do we stand firm against it? He says to flee from the devil. No flee from you. Flee from the devil. I think the, in, the, the major weight within this verse is not just so much actively turning from Satan, but it's who you turn to. It's really who you turn to. Okay? It's not that you're trying out as hard as you can to like, do battle against the enemy. Alright? Don't do that. Don't live like that. Don't think like, we're going to take on Satan. Alright? We're going to sing songs that prove that we're going to take on demonic kingdoms. Honestly, you guys, we can't do that. It's not us. It's, it, this is the battle that God has to fight. And He just simply says, turn to Me. Turn to Me, and the devil will turn away from you. Love this picture, because it's almost just like someone's chasing after you, your kid, and all of a sudden your kid runs into your arms. You're not dealing with the kid anymore. You're dealing with the dad. And he's ticked. All right? I mean, if some predator is like chasing my kid, and they can chase my kid as far and as long as they want, and they'll probably overpower because they're not as strong. But the moment my kid runs into my arms, now you're dealing with me. All right? I don't have a lot of patience with that. Okay? It's the picture of God. Don't take on Satan. Run into God's arms. 
run into God's arms. I want to finish right now. We're going to just finish with some worship. But what what I want to finish on a note on is I want us to consider really why it's important for us to cling to Jesus. Because we are insufficient in ourselves to fight the battle. We can't. We will lose. This is exactly why John writes this little passage. He says, you know, my dearly beloved children, greater is he who's in you than he who's in the world. That's John's way of saying, listen, the enemy is very, very strong and he may wipe you out. He's very strong. But I am in you and I've overcome the world and I've defanged Satan. Right? By the way, I talk about him like a roaring lion running about trying to devour you. But Jesus is like, I defanged him. Right? There are no, he might gum you. And he might like latch onto your leg and just gum you, but he will never destroy you. Hold on to me tightly and I'll conquer and I'll be the victor. So the issue is this, that we aren't out to try to fight a battle on our own. We're really out to just stay, stay as close as we can to Jesus. Okay? That's, that's really our call, is to stay close to Jesus. He died on the cross for us, who conquered Satan sin and death who rose again from the dead and to all who would come to him we have victory over the darkness now we will still be in battle Satan will still try to render us you might be there right now but the key is the issue is the call the charge is to flee the devil and cling to Jesus cling to Christ call upon him the way this works itself out practically is if you are here today and if you look at yourself and say, I am in the midst of some sort of spiritual attack. I don't know how to describe it other than I don't feel free. I feel attacked. I feel oppressed. Jesus is here to set you free. I'm going to pray for you right now. If that's you, I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand. I'm I just, I just going to pray for you. And, and then we'll just be led in some songs of worship and calling upon the Lord, but I want to pray for those of you right now that might be kind of feeling that sense of oppression, feeling attacked, feeling as if you're sort of in the crossfires of the enemy. I'm just, I want to pray that God would just set you free. We're going to respond by giving our tithes and our offerings. If you're one of our guests, please don't give anything. Just keep it. We just want you to have Jesus. If, if this is your church, your fellowship, Give joyfully to Jesus. We love Him. That's why we want to give. We love what He's doing. We want to be a part of that. Um, we're going to respond by singing to the Lord. If you're here and you need prayer for anything else that's going on in your life, you can go over to the side. We'll have some leaders over there available to pray for you. I'm going to pray for you right now, then we'll worship a little bit, and we'll dismiss you guys, okay? Jesus, right now, I just want to pray for anybody here right now that just sort of feels themselves under the weight of this oppression, under the weight of attack and demonic activity, and just a feeling of being overwhelmed. They don't know how to describe it. They don't know how to break free from it. Lord God, I just pray right now that you would cause them to see you today, that you would help them just to see that you are the victor, to help them to see um, just the fact, Jesus, that you have not only conquered sin, conquered death, but you rose again from the grave, that you, you are today seated on the right hand of the Father. And even though Satan accuses and most of his accusations are true, that Jesus, you have plucked us as a brand out of the fire. We were burning, 
We deserve to be burning. And yet, Jesus, you saved us. And you've taken off our scorched robes and put on brand new ones. You've called us your own. Jesus, I pray right now that you would take the centrality of our thoughts right now as we worship you.